Today's podcast is brought to you by Caffeine Gum Australia. Designed for use by the US military, caffeine chewing gum has been widely used in professional sports as the main pre-game or training caffeine source for a number of years now. Some of the benefits include 100 milligrams of caffeine per piece. It absorbs through your mouth and not through your stomach, therefore giving your body quicker access to the caffeine. And it comes in three different and unique flavors, including cinnamon, spearmint, and arctic mint. Try some today at www.caffeinegumaustralia.com. And boom, we're back. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the latest edition of the Wandering Bear Sports Podcast, the number one sports podcast in the world. Today's guest on the podcast is Southern District's head coach, Todd Loudon. During his career, which has taken him all over the rugby world, Todd has won a Super Rugby title as the attack coach for the Bulls and has made the final as the attack coach for the Waratahs. During his Shoot Shield career, he has won the Shoot Shield with Sydney University. Working with him at Southern Districts has been an eye-opening experience for myself. As someone who has always been interested in coaching, when I made the transition this year, I can honestly say I wouldn't I would have taken the year off if Todd wasn't coaching at Southern Districts. How I treated this discussion was that I took it as an opportunity to go into greater detail on subjects that Todd talks about with the coaching staff at South, but we don't necessarily have the time to go into great detail during the week. Some of the things we touch on are tactical periodization, game model, what it is and how you can uh, impact that on your team and your game, Uh, perception-action coupling, which is really interesting and I think it's something that most coaches need to be aware of, different learning styles of individuals and how to accommodate that, and basically how to help people make the most of their potential. Um, So if anything, this podcast, while it answered a lot of questions for me, it's probably given me a whole heap of new questions to ask. Um, and Todd and I were talking after the podcast and, you know, some of the subjects we went into are, are probably a podcast on their own and we will do them down the track. Um, so I'm, I've really enjoyed jumping into the coaching world and, and today's guest has been a really big influence on me and my development as a coach. And if you're a young coach, you will absolutely get a lot out of this. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Southern District's head coach, Todd Loudon. Hey, mate. How are you? Good, mate. I just can't see you. Can you hear me all right? Oh, you can't see me. There we go. How are you, mate? Yeah, all right. Just working away. That's all right. That's all right. Um, Fucking freeze, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Are you happy to just root straight into it? Yeah, let's go. Um, okay, so how I normally do it is I, I try and do it as, as a bit of a conversation because I kind of know some of the guests, and but I don't really know what I want them to say. Yeah. Um, obviously, uh, working with you as one of the coaches at South, um, you know, I'm, go- I'm probably going to be quite selfish and take this opportunity to dig into some things that I've wanted to probably go a bit further on than yeah. the chances we get during the week. Um, and hopefully other people get something out of it as well. Yeah. Um, first thing I wanted to talk about was game model. What is it? How do you create it? And how is it relevant in designing a training program? 
Yeah, that's a little bit, it's a little bit of a tricky one because there's lots of different views and possibly some misunderstandings around gay model. So when you do most coaching courses, they'll talk to you about what your philosophy of play is. And so I see a lot of coaches and myself included to come out with a philosophy of play and then try and implement that philosophy of play with possibly a team that's not, uh, can't, can't implement that philosophy of play. So uh, it's quite interesting. I think if, if you took a Crusaders player and you put them into a, um, another system where there was a different philosophy of play and a different game model, in some ways that Crusaders player would struggle so a game model uh, in part takes on your philosophy of play, in part takes on the players that you have uh, in, your, in your squad. It also takes in how the referees are interpreting the laws. As we know, they vary from, from year to year. Uh, also um, then takes in I suppose the athletic ability and skill level of your ability of your players so there's quite a lot in the game model in my and in my view that needs to be considered I think trends in the game has a big influence on your game model as well so for instance if defensive like defense has been a real prominent part of the game in the last oh, 10 years it's probably had the upper hand. So how attack breaks down defensive system could be totally uh, opposite your philosophy of play. So that, might, that makes yeah, sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so for instance, um, let's use the English rugby team or the Springbok team. They have a dominant scrum more often than not. And so if you're, let's say, the Wallabies and we like to play with ball in hand a little bit more, at times that can play into their hands because we'll give them more scrums. Yeah. So next minute we're coming up against, we've got a team and this is where the tactical periodization comes in. We've got a team that tracks, uh, that practices with ball in hand predominantly, but doesn't train their time under pressure at scrum time or the slowness of the scrum all game. Yeah. And then you're getting absolutely knackered at scrum time because the English or the boxer destroying your scrum, but yet you're still trying to throw the ball around. So, so to, just so I can understand this in my brain, um, so your your game model can change week to week depending on your opposition, or it should change week to week depending on your opposition, depending on the, the refs' trends, depending on the team you have for that week. Is that right? No, your game plan will change, but not your game model. Your game model is your DNA. Okay. What you, what what the team is all about for the season. So you might have some very good prob. Props, but they're not mobile around the field. So you might want to play an, you know, or some big forward pack, 
they're not overly mobile around the field. You want to play a set-piece game. So therefore, your, your game model is a set-piece game, a set-piece strike game, kick for corners, more scrummage. You might come up against a, um, a team that wants to move the ball around. So therefore, your game model will be built on set-piece and defence and sound defence, forcing turnovers. So that's your game model, and you'll condition the team appropriate to the game model that you've selected based on the many factors. So that's where the Springboks are very good at kicking the corner, mauling, scrummaging. We have in England have made a very good, um, I suppose, feast on us at times with our scrum. Okay. So as a coach, when you're walking into a new team or program, do you – so you've got this idea that you of a way you would like your game model to be, but if the personnel don't necessarily match up to that, do you do you go through the process of upskilling the personnel so that they can play your game model, or do you mould the game model around the personnel that you have? It's a bit it's of a both. Little, little, it's a bit, a bit of, both. of both. And remember, yeah. you, your your philosophy is how you would like to play the game. Uh, that that needs to change more often than not. Yeah, um, I see is probably what some of the biggest mistakes that I've made is I've gone in wanting to play a maybe an expressive attacking game, but we quite didn't have the players. Now, obviously, our job as coaches is develop players, but when you want success, you know, every year you have to gradually layer that game model and that philosophy into the team. Okay. Okay, so well, sorry. Once so once you've you've worked out the game model that the team's going to have for that season, mm. how, how does that affect how you design the training program? Maybe starting from preseason, or is that quite an in-depth topic? Uh, well, let's speak generally yeah. <laughs> about that. But it is massive. That's has massive um, implications on how you go about training. So. Um, one of the best that I've seen, Dean Benton, who's currently the um, with the Wallabies and has done a hell of a lot of work in that. But it, it's it's a good example is, is you might have a good scrum. So you need to condition the players around that scrum as well. So you could say we could spend a lot of time on scrummaging but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily what's their transition from scrum into phase play like both in attack and defense. So you have to condition accordingly. So if you come up against a set piece team, your game plan may change a little bit. You may, you may have to play, for instance, England made a, made a habit of beating us in various test matches by Defending well, allowing us to drop the ball, force scrums, take our scrum apart, kick corners, play territory, grind us down, yeah. kick, kick penalties. Um, and that, that has been very successful at test match level. So you might come up with a game model where you, got, you don't want to um, <laughs> scrummage, so yeah. you need to move the ball in certain parts of the field. Okay. So... Therefore, when you're conditioning, if you're going to hold the ball for long periods of time, then that has to be very specific. 
So again, your tactical periodization, which is the way that you play the game, is based on your game model. And generally, you try and aim to be in your game model, which I like to call your DNA, is you need to be enhancing that with the way that you train. Okay. You just you brought it up a couple of times, tactical periodization. Can, can we talk about that a little bit? And yeah. what, is, what is it? How do you implement it? Okay. Tactical periodization is, oh, and I'm being general, Dean, Dean Bentner would <laughs> slap me, but... Uh, tactical periodization can be as complicated or as easy as you make it, but generally it is training the way you play. Okay. It's also training so that you've got an edge in your uh, set game model and DNA. So if you want to play fast, you need to train fast. Yeah. Okay. And you need to train specifically to the way that you, that you want to play. And that's key. So for me, if I'm being really a generalist, really, really general, then the tactic periodization is making sure that you don't, uh, that you utilise your time specifically on your game model and that you get all your conditioning um, and edge in athletic ability through the way that you train. Okay, that makes sense. So, so when you're working... When you're working out what the tactical periodization is going to be for preseason, yeah. you'll will you will you go to the GPS data of I, I don't know a Super Rugby game and go a prop runs that distance at that speed, and then we work backwards from that during the preseason. Is is that roughly that? Yeah, you're, you're on the you're you're on the money. However, we would want to train above uh, game speed possibly, or game stress so that we know that we're developing players to play at a level within the game model that other teams can't handle. That's the Nirvana. How do you, like, I've been involved in your training program as a player and then being on the other side of the fence, it's, um, it's very interesting to see all the thought that goes into it. Um, how do you how do you know how far to take it? Yeah, this this is quite interesting. There's a lot of science behind it. There's also it's more of an art than science in many ways. And also having now a couple of times uh, seen the way that the storm train. They're quite, uh, their sports science is, is quite up there. Dean, I think Dean helps them out there as well. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but uh, it's, uh, yeah, you, you're always trying to create an athletic edge within the said game model and the way that you want to play. And so you, you're always probably pushing them to the limits a little bit and then yeah. backing off and then periodizing it so that they get the appropriate stresses or of the game and that they can they can operate above let's take game speed we know that the ball is in play on average in Australian super rugby around 31 minutes okay yes. 
We also know what speed that they run at, uh, what above game, what we call above game speed, uh, what general speed they run at. So we, in many cases, want to try and develop our players to operate at a higher level game speed than our opposition. So that comes into the GPS data in many ways. And you will look at that after every session that we do during preseason, and then adjust it going forward if we're not hitting our markers for that week or that session? Yeah. I tend to use a three-week period, a cumulative period, so monitor it and then, and then back off from a periodization model. Um, and this is where Jared Knapp's been very good as well. So, yeah, there's a lot in it, but, you know, if you look at the way the storm trains, that storm trains sometimes, they have weeks where they do, it's just like a basham session. Just push them to their limits so that they know that they can go there. And so that's the, that's the art of it. So the GPS data, whilst a lot of people utilise it as um, real set uh, frameworks, I tend to use it as a tool. And then the art of coaching, watching the players, seeing how much you think they can handle. Can we push them a little bit more? Right now we need to back off there for a week, let them recover. So I think at our level at the moment, the biggest issue that we have, and I've seen it at, at super rugby level as well, is recovery. Um, so you can push them, but if they're not recovering properly, then it's you know you need no use backing up the next week or being progressive. Yeah, you, you put a big emphasis on the players taking their own um, responsibility for recovery. Is, is it the same at Super Rugby as it is at Shoot Shield level in that regard? Look, it's different, different environments, different um, clubs. So I'm, I've done a little bit of work with Anthony Clarica, who was with um, Hawthorne. He was their sports performance coach at Hawthorne and he's been quite interesting. He's been, I've been kind of getting insight into other games, to other codes. And I think, look, the biggest thing is, is from a recovery perspective is what you put in your mouth and the sleep particularly. So we all train very hard. There's minimal, <coughs> there's minimal differences between uh, teams these days in terms of athletic conditioning and what so so however where I think Dean is really driving it is your edge comes out of your ability to develop uh, players athletic skills and ability either within that within the game model so as a coach, you say, okay, this is what our this is our strength. This is where why our game models this way. Let's make sure that that strength is top notch. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I, I use the I use the GPS as purely a tool. Well, I've, I've noticed I've noticed a few sessions, uh, particularly in preseason, where like from my eyes watching, I'm going, fuck, that's a big session, and then. You, you'll obviously see something within the boys and then there's something extra at the end. Is, is that when it, the, it's the art of it that comes into it? Yes, yeah, spot on. So if I think that they, uh, th there'll be some weeks where I know is a, a heavy week where I know that I can see that they want 
more and more and sorry they don't want more they never want more but they can take a little bit more then i go into now the mental side of things the mindset so i'll push them knowing that the following week is an unload week okay okay, okay so, so that's that's kind of that's kind of why you push them a um, little bit of art a little bit of science knowing that they will have some recovery time yes yeah, but that perhaps the psychological benefits might even outweigh any of the damage, maybe. Spot on. And this is where Checker was really good. Uh, so, um, and, uh, and, I, and I believe Eddie has been big on that as well. So, I, look, I, I really like the saying, it's, it's, more, it's, it's not a, a scientific approach. It's part science, but it's really an art. And so as the coach, you've got to take in and you've got to put people around you that understand that. And, you know, sometimes I'll look at Jared and I'll go to Jared, who's our head S&C, and say, have they got any more in them? And he'll say, yeah, I think they've got a little bit more. But what we're looking for, you know, again, being very general, is if a player has significantly changed his running gait because he's so fatigued, we'll pull them out. If their screening process before training and their groin squeezes down, we pull them out of training. We manage them accordingly. So returning from injury. I think a big one is for us at the moment is we're in the middle of the year. The biggest one that we need to look for is um, the flu or or common cold. And at club level, more often than not, we just throw them straight back in. Yeah. And we forget to manage that they don't realise that they've just taken a hit to their system so that we've got to actually graduate it back in. Yeah, mate, that makes sense. Um, the next thing I wanted to bring up, we were having a very interesting chat last night as a coaching staff about perception, action, coupling. Um, it's, it's a term you use a lot and it's something I think would be very valuable for young coaches to understand and to, to realise what does perception action coupling mean? Yeah, this is another one that we probably need to general generalize a little bit to, to simplify it. But basically it is doing everything that we do is we're building pitches for the players or, op- or basically teaching them and coaching them uh, skill sets within the game and, and within the pitches that they'll see in the game. So, again, we're not wasting a rep, uh, but, the, but the trying to, they are basically linking the picture that they are in or experiencing to the skill that is required. Okay, now, on top of that, so that percep- that's the perception side of things. The action is obviously the skill that is required, I'd go, and this is what we were talking about last night, I would go as far to say within our game model, there's also some discipline to game plan. Uh, Discipline to implementation, skill execution within the action. And then obviously the coupling is allowing the player to see that it's a full circle, to see... So he understands the perception of where he's on the field, the picture that he's seeing, the action of the skill, the discipline, the implementation of the game plan, back to game. So that's the coupling. So everything we do in training is is 
aiming to to achieve those outcomes so that it's extremely specific for the players. So when it comes to a game, there's no surprises and they've been there before. Yeah. It, it's, it's, what it does is, is you are creating links or pitches and links of skill execution. So the skill acquisition is a lot quicker. Whereas I see more often than not, uh, let's take an example of a tracking drill, like just an individual tracking drill where a defender passes the ball forward to an attacking player and then he tracks. So there's no real movement into position. He's He's making a forward pass, which... You know, never, happens. never happens and yeah. then tackle, and then tracks the player and tackles. So there's a whole lot of skills in that. But to me, that's a wasted rep. That's not specific to the game. That's a, that's a drill. That's a drill. And is the player actually getting the picture that's the same in the game and therefore knowing what skill is required or being able to execute the skill? Okay. So um, an example you gave last night is, um, you know, we were doing a defensive drill before training and and guys were folding. So it was on the field, um, sort of in the 15-metre channel, and guys were folding into the 15-metre channel, which never happens in a game. So it's, it's even getting as specific as, you know, where you are on the field doing your drills so that it completely replicates what pictures you'll see in a game. Yeah, um, we've got to be careful of the word completely replicates or the term complete. But yes, we've got to be painting the right pictures. And the same, I like to look at it as movement. Yeah. And a very good way from a skills, skills and movement patterns. So it's the same in a game. So if the folding, mainly we fold around or fold back or fold... Very rarely do we fold to the short side with two players without there being a player there to make a tackle. Usually we link to the sh- with a short side player. Okay. Okay, or we, or we move. So I, lo- I look at when we do skills, what is our pre-movement to the skill execution? What is our movement during the skill execution? And what is our movement post-skill execution? What is the movement of the opposition? pre, during, and post. And now we're starting to not replicate, but paint the picture like it would in a game, even to the point of how many times, and you might not have the face, but I'm I'm a bit of a um, (laughs) pedantic about making sure we do line outs the same as position on the field, Um, that we never do passing drills across the field. Yeah. Um, so even to even to that extent, because it's going to transfer into the game. Exactly. Like oh, the amount of times I see players before training passing the ball forward. Yeah. To me, that's and I know I'm pedantic. That's a wasted rep. Rather yeah. than standing side on rotating. Well, it just makes it just makes you realise how how over many years, and I'm sure you've had the same experiences as a player and a coach that um, there's a lot of wasted moments that a lot of teams and individuals have. And, and like, if your whole goal is to get better as a team and as a player, then being this specific is probably the way you want to approach it. Spot on. And I, I, our biggest, any team, 
and any coach, their biggest enemy is time. They just don't have enough time. And I've been with some professional teams where our contact work in a week was five minutes. So, and you know, across the, you know, that's attack and defense. So how do we, how do we maximize time? So you look at scenarios in the game where we, where we feel we, where we feel we need development, and that's what we're going to practice um, specifically. Okay, so micro it. sorry, you go, you go. We might micro skill it individually, but generally when we're practicing as practicing as a team. So I can remember when I was starting as a coach, I'd send the team around the field for a bit of a lap, warm up lap. Well, I think um, I, th- I know you've sp- spoken to Crony. Crony. I think he's talked about primers and all of these things. They're spot on because they're specific to, to the game and getting them, preparing them to, to, to train and, and basically acquire the skills. Um, it's amazing how much has changed in the 15 years that I've been involved in Shoot Shield. Um, I was telling one of the, the boys the other day, my first ever session at South, they set cones up on the field. And the first drill with Les Motto, who was an old fitness trainer from around the area, complete fucking maniac, <laughs> 40, 40 minutes of running nonstop, and you've got to calculate how far you've gone. And now every session is GPS, your, your running meters are tracked, you, you're accountable in absolutely everything you do. And I, I guess it just goes to show how, how it's changed and how professional this level of rugby is now. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that's crept in, and it's a it's a bit of a buzz, or was a buzzword, but we don't want our players running junk meters. We want them running quality meters in training, and if we can do that in training, then we'll maximise that. I still think that there's a place, as we've discussed already, for kind of beating them up a little bit at the right appropriate times, and then and then you know kind of raising the threshold a little bit. That's more the mental threshold. But I also know that we need to really monitor is the best way that, like, if we've got a prop, for instance, and I'm not picking on the props, that just goes from set piece to set piece in the Southern Hemisphere. Well, the, not these days not going to get picked. I mean, you're seeing props now, ball play, uh, you're seeing props get over the ball a lot more, get around the field, make their tackles, be comfortable in a 15-metre channel, um, but you don't want them plodding around the ground. And that's that's the beauty of GPS. Well, we, well you know, for example, we had a tight head prop at our club to make 27 tackles the other day, yep. which is basically unheard of. Yeah. You know, shows yeah. the way it's going. Um, how do you use theming? To communicate your messages. <laughs> Jeez, you're asking all the key questions now. I think this is important, and it's also our attention span is these days. Well, maybe never was, but I think these days with all the um, uh, all the different devices and things buying for our attention, <laughs> um, when we talk, when we want to. Um, coach or teach and I, I again there's two different things between teaching and coaching i think that's really important um you need a certain amount of teaching skills yes but but coaching coaching the game is is different 
Um, they do go hand, hand in hand. But, but theming and being very succinct with your messaging is critical. And um, I think Dave, Dave Wessels, and I think any of the good coaches are very big on go towards language. Uh, what does that mean? Because that's, that's quite important and, and something you mentioned a lot around the coaching group at South. Yeah, I, I forget who it was I saw on social media the other day said, don't think of an elephant. You immediately think of an elephant. And you think of an elephant, right? Yeah. So apparently the human brain can't quite <laughs> the negative properly. So, so, so your go towards language is really uh, when you're either error correcting is succinct and it's what they need to go towards. So what they need to do as opposed to uh, don't stick your chin on your chest. So it, instead, of, instead of don't stick your chin on your chest, it's push your chest, push your chin forward. So yeah, it could be as simple as... For example. Uh, yeah, yeah. And that's in your, in your error correction. Uh, you, um, but in terms of theming for the game, it's, it's always a positive for me. It's all, all, always a target. It's always something that's... Um, we work really hard on at South, as you know. Uh, and look, we never get it right. Um, all the time, but in this day and age, I think with our our players, I think it's very important that we put a lot of thought into our language, our directions, our themes, uh, and that's the teacher side of me as well coming out. And it's something I've done naturally, but I've probably since gone away. Uh, there's some really good literature on it now too, um, and, and science in terms of it. So, uh, yeah, we, we're learning a lot now about from a, from a sports science perspective about cueing as well. We find cueing externally is, is, is more powerful. So outside of the, like, um, for instance, uh, can you feel your foot touch the ground that link is quite difficult for most players rather than push the ground away from you. Okay. That's a big difference, really, when you say it like that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, and um, I know, you know, there's a, there's a whole lot of literature and study on this and, and it, uh, I'll give you some references later, but yes. like, for instance, if you said to you, Throw the ball as high as you can in the air, okay, as opposed to I want you to hit the roof as hard as you can with the ball. See the difference? Yeah, absolutely. All of a sudden you're like, yeah. So little things like that. And I'm um, kind of stealing bits from various different people, but it's, it's yeah. Something I've noticed you do is with the team meetings, you have a number of different ways of getting your messages across. Um there's been times where on a Friday captain's run, the boys will walk in and they're, they're playing a game or there's a video or there's players getting up and speaking or, you know, sometimes they're sitting down, sometimes they're standing. Why, why do you do it like that? Uh, generally, meetings, are, um, meetings can actually destroy 
team's a team's attention span and whatnot. And there's generally in any professional environment, what have you, there's a lot. We all play for fun, really, at the end of the day, because we enjoy it. And I think it's important to mix up those meetings and grab their, you know, really their attention, but also have a little bit of fun and then move into it. Um, so mixing up the delivery method is an old teaching uh, thing that we, we always do. It's just like standing out and, I mean, as a teacher, I was taught never to stand really in, directly in front of the class because your vision's obstructed. Yep. So you can stand in a corner so you can see more of them. All those little teaching skills are part of delivering. Um, one of the best people at delivering I've seen, I've seen ever is probably Kevin Foote. He's ridiculously good, funny and brings humour, but he's very sincere and then, he, and then bang, he's on point. So each coach and teacher develops their own way. And uh, that again, that's the art of teaching and, and coaching. But, yeah, I do it to mix it up. And you look at the way that our players roll into a, um, before our captains run, they all they can't wait to get up there. They, they want to get into it or there's something, you know, something new. They know that they're going to be hit with something different. So I'm going to pull out karaoke sooner. Make sure I missed that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, just sing heavy metal, you'll be right. Um, something you and I have talked about a little bit over the last couple of years is the subject of team cohesion. Yeah. Um, I think Ben Darwin's company, former Wallaby prop Ben Darwin, has made a business around um, team cohesion analytics. Um, I've, I've heard you say a number of times this year that team cohesion is our biggest um, issue. Challenge. Yeah, challenge, challenge, challenge. Um, what is team cohesion? What does it mean and, and why is it important to the success of a rugby team or a sporting team? Yeah, I, look, some of Ben's work's been outstanding like um and you can take it all on or i mean in an ideal world you'd be in an, at a club or, or a professional environment where they've come through the system it's very rare though but the more players that have come through the junior system and know what who they're playing for what they're playing for and have a genuine uh heartfelt uh, um uh, attachment to the area or the region and the players that they've come through, you'll find that those clubs generally are the clubs that do well. So when you're in a situation such as a professional environment, I mean, I look at Melbourne, there's players coming from everywhere, really. So how do you create that? How do you create that team cohesion that where they have an attachment that's both heartfelt and genuine and that they're playing for something higher than just themselves. Uh, and in this modern era, that's a hard, that's a hard thing. And I think anyone that is able to unlock that without bringing them through the system is going to be the most successful coach ever. So in the, the I guess, the, the transient nature of semi-professional and professional rugby these days, um, having a group that you can keep together for a long time 
that, that has a, a deep affection for the club and an attachment to that area is far more likely to be successful. Is that, am I on the right track? Spot there? on, spot on. And that's why we're so keen at South. Our Colts are very young. And whilst uh, there's been games where they've copped, you know, a bit of a hiding, then I've seen other games where they, you've seen, I've seen how well they've progressed. Now, if we keep them together, uh, one, their last year of Colts, I think they'll be quite successful because it's quite cyclical. And then, then two, if they're able to filter into grade, now we've got players with a, a deep attachment and understanding of the club. They understand the system. They understand each other and they play for each other as well as the club. And that's, that's very powerful. So I'm really excited and really um, working hard with all our Colts coaches to keep these, this current Colts group together, you know, no matter what, because they will come through and they'll be successful. Um, this, this might tie into the, the next thing I want to talk about is something I noticed last year when you first came to the club, and it's, it's probably gone up a notch this year, is you do a lot of work with the players um, in terms of their off-field um, leadership skills, life skills, um, you know, along those areas. Why is that so important in developing a rugby player? Yeah, I find it's a bit of a cliche, but better people make better rugby players. And obviously being an ex-teacher or someone who's been a teacher... I'm really big on personal development. And I just know that at club now, we have younger and younger players come through. More often than not, with all various different uh, life uh, challenges. And so something like life skills, leadership development is critical in any team or any organisation to be successful. So having those programs in place, now particularly this year, we've really focused on our leadership development. I think we're getting a lot out of that. Having someone like Chris Sinclair has been great. He's a huge, huge asset to our club. Yeah, Absolutely. And he's really taken the concept of uh, leadership development program on and forward at the club. And I, I would say... Uh, couple that with the coaching on-field leadership and that's becoming quite a powerful program for us and we'll continue to do so. So, yeah, it's it's really about the development of the individual and I was actually only having a conversation with a sponsor today. I think I've spent more time coaching or teaching young men now have how to have man conversations than I do... Than I do um, coaching. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, I could imagine there's a lot of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it's, a very, it's a very important skill for um, young men to develop. And I think, you know, it's easy these days with, you know, put your head down in your iPhone or your computer and not have those conversations. But in a sporting and social context, we need to have those. We need to be able to confront and have those hard conversations uh, but also have a man conversation and nothing's off topic. And I know uh, you were at a, uh, a recent one where, you know, even the coaches have to have those. And we have to show um, that raw side of us 
often to the players and and also the vulnerable side of us. And I think that's really important in today's age. This might be a very long-winded question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How do you change culture? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a this is a hard one. I think culture's developed over a period. And sometimes the environment changes the club or the, 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 the culture of the club or the culture of the group. Um, sometimes a set of players that possibly come through, like we just talked about in terms of cohesion, come through and change the culture also. So it can be environment, it can be some key players, it could be coaches driving certain standards and understanding the value of, of culture. It's not an easy thing. And it's a bit, again, it's more of an art than a science and each coach has a unique way of doing it or a different way of doing it. Uh, but I think it's also allowing the players to understand themselves and what they bring to the table within the makeup and direction and, and targets of the team. Some, something, so I've, I've obviously started, just started coaching this year, and something that I've found very interesting is dealing with the different individuals. Um, <laughs> everyone, everyone's got different um, desires, different expectations. They see the world differently, different egos. How do you how do you deal with that? And I mean, at the end of the day, everyone wants to win, but some people don't really want to do what is required to win. Yeah, yeah. You come across those characters that will they just have this drive. Doesn't matter what they're doing, that they want to win. And there are other types of characters that can change the culture of the team. Uh, then you've got the quintessential clubmen that just want the club to do well. And there's a dark side, bright side and a dark side to every everything. Um, but, yeah, there, there's those in, those aspirational in, individuals that, is, I think you used the word, transient. So it's forming that connection with the club that's critical. Yeah. Uh, I tend to attack it from every angle. So I tend to push, pull, encourage, uh, slap, pat. Um, and I think there's more wrong ways than right ways. And you find it, you find. But as long as that, so long as the individuals understand that you are there for them, but ultimately that the good of the club or the good of the team must come first, but, yeah. but, but you genuinely care. And then it gets to a point where some players have to find their own way. So knowing when to kind of not step back but step aside and stop probably leading them or, or holding their hand type thing. Is that something you've learned over experience, with experience? Yep, the hard way. Okay. No, okay. I would, I would like to say... I would like to say it's been easy, but it's. You, I do lose sleep. I lose sleep over a lot of players because I think, are they maximising their potential? Not just in rugby, but in life. Are they 
are they being true to themselves? I think you could say that about a lot of people in, in all walks of life. Um, did, uh, what was I going to ask you? Particularly, well, something, something I've noticed, and it's po- probably impossible, but I think if you could ever get a group of individuals together to put their egos aside for the betterment of a, single, a singular purpose, something special would really happen there. Yeah. Is that possible? <laughs> yeah, it is. And I think it is. And I think that's the key with messaging and theming. And excuse me, if they buy into it, you, you've seen it when they buy into a, this game. Yeah. And all of a sudden there's a moment in time or a moment in the season where they go, uh, not today, boys, we're on. We're going to do this. And then they play above themselves because they're playing for each other or something higher than themselves more often than not, which they know will contribute to where they want to go. And so, yeah, it's possible. Yeah, it took, it took me a long time to learn in my career that I was never really interested in my own self-benefit, but if, if it was the benefit of the group and the club and, and the community, I would play above myself, which wasn't very very high, just quietly, but... <laughs> But it's way more powerful than just having individual, I want to make the Waratahs or I want to make this team. And I, I think a lot of players probably don't understand that or lose sight of that from time to time. Yeah. I see it. Look, we've got a couple at the club now. Um, and it's really interesting, the changes that you go through life. I think having kids has been a really interesting for some of our players. I know myself, you know, I had kids... I changed straight away and there was more to life and there was more and I, and, and all of a sudden coaching or playing rugby becomes an enjoyment piece and I want to play with the players and, I, and yeah, I want to play for something higher and you are playing for something higher. I think, yeah, there's a lot of different reasons, but it's just getting the player and the person to identify that and also identify what they can bring to the table for the greater good of the, the team. So I guess it's probably the biggest challenge in coaching. Yeah, without a doubt. <laughs> Again, you get it you get it wrong more times than you get it right. Um, I won't keep you too long, mate. I know you've got heaps to do. Just a couple more questions. As a young coach, what's the best way that you can develop your coaching skills, uh, your knowledge, and maybe your way of thinking about the game? Yeah, that's uh, this is dear to my heart again. My teaching background kind of dictates that. I think the biggest thing that's needed in in uh, in Australian rugby at the moment it's just my opinion, but we really need mentoring, uh, a mentor system where coaches, for instance, uh, I want to learn more about lineouts. So we are able to go find a, a mentor that will mentor us on lineouts and share their views and then you go away and think about that. Whilst the basics of teaching skills and coaching skills and the game are all important, I think it's, uh, well, let's face it, you've been a prop propping down at the bar late of the night and teaching each other and sharing ideas. I think that's peer learning is the most valuable learning and that mentoring is the most valuable. And I think it's something that's quite dear to my heart. I'm, I'm trying to find ways where we can set 
coaches up or aspiring coaches up with mentors. Um, and I think that's where it's at. I'm telling you, I've, since I put the Crony podcast out, I would have had 20 messages from young coaches um, eager for that kind of thing. So I think there's a market in that if you ever, if you ever pursue that. I'd, I'd certainly jump in on that. Mate, last question. And it's, it's again, from my experience this year, um, if I say something to a group, it's not as powerful as one of the senior guys in the group saying something. Is getting that senior player buy-in critical? And how do you go about, about doing that? Yeah. Forming a relationship with your leadership group and your captain is critical. And so generally they're probably more likely to be the senior leaders or in some cases what I title as the winners in the group, the winner, win at all cost. And so having those relation, that relationship where you can share your thoughts and it's collaborative both ways and that it's not that the leaders become the voice of the coach, they be, but they are in tune with what's required, that you've come to an agreement with what's required to, to win the game or to develop parts of your game, and that they are uh, not just helping drive it, but drive it themselves as well. And that's where we've done a lot of work this year. So it's more about developing that working relationship that's collaborative and that's, you know, really nothing's off the table. In, in many ways, and, and they're free to speak what they think and vice versa, and you come to an agreement, say, right, let's attack it like this, and then off you go. And, yeah, you're spot on. I, I, uh, and it happens in, in, in the most successful teams that you've probably been associated with. The coach or coaching group uh, have a collaborative approach with the team because at the end of the day, um, I think with Sammy Harris, he goes, oh, I don't know whether I like coaching. It's so nervous, so stressful. I'd rather play. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think that's the key. Um, you're not out there playing. They are. They're going to make mistakes. We make mistakes. So, again, it's a collaborative approach. I lied to you, mate. I've got one more question. What is the importance of failure in the learning process? Oh, that is, you've got to. You've got to. So I always tell a story, um, obviously, having travelled around the world with rugby, the first thing I do is when I'm in a, in a new environment, environment is go and get lost. So I force myself to ensure there's failure. <laughs> yeah. And then you find your way and then you notice things and whatnot. And, and failure, it's a terrible term, really, because it's not, it's, it's, it should be called learning process or something. I've got to come up with a bit of term, but failure is so important. The key is, is that you don't make the same mistake repeatedly. Yeah. That you learn from, your, from those mistakes. So it's where coaches get frustrated where, uh, for instance, you could have a good video review and say, listen, this is coming up a lot. And then they make the same mistake again. Now, that's actually not on the player. That's on the coach because the coach hasn't been clear enough in, in or uh, the process hasn't been good enough in helping the player 
see or develop that skill set to recognise it and and, uh, implement it. So that could be in language, that could be in many things. But, yeah, failure is essential and and allowing them, and that's, uh, again, the whole part whole, throwing them in the deep end, letting them fail, then uh, teaching them how to do it, coaching them how to do it, then go back to the the hole again and seeing the transfers. I, I was going to say, I've noticed that you you seem to do, not do it, but you seem to set uh, scenarios up that encourage failure. Yeah. So that it's a learning opportunity and then we go, oh, guys, no, this is what we need to be doing. And it's almost a better way of learning than just being told what to do. Yeah. And it's, it's I, I do that now more often than I, and I do it with coaches when I'm helping out coaches set them up almost not to fail, but to be in an environment where they, where, and, and it, it is a bit of a head fuck, you know, and then <laughs> so can the game can be chaotic. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a place for it. And then there's a place for, uh, I suppose, unpacking it, putting it back together. Um, yeah. So failure is, it's critical. It's just part of the learning process. So, in all aspects of life, not not just rugby. Spot on, and that again, that's the teacher, <laughs> the teacher, yeah. and, I, and that's something I, you know, without blowing wind up your ass, that's something that I've seen this year. Your transition from player to coach has been one of the best that I've seen. It's been unbelievable, Fabio. You're really growing in that because you're thinking of you're kind of thinking of a lot of angles and you're prepared to fail i've fucked up a few times and i've I've realized it and um you know it feels way worse fucking up as a coach than it does as a player because you know as a player you can fix it up but as a coach you've letting more than just yourself down yeah i think i think the the biggest thing people talk about um I, I talk about two things now: growth, growth mindset. The teaching in schools at the moment, and if you've got a growth mindset, you're learning from everything. And coaches, coaches fail all the time. Yeah. But then I think it's really important also to have a winning mindset. Yeah. As a, as both a coach and a, you know, and all, we're going to win, and that's a positive way of of going. So. They are, some will say they are the same thing and they are, but I think there is slightly different, a growth mindset. I've, I know people, you know, my son has a growth mindset. Does he have a winning mindset? I don't know. You know, he's, yeah. he's not, he's, he's, he loves life and he learns and what have you, but that doesn't mean that he has this drive to win. Something that I've sort of observed is, is something that's probably critical is there's a lot of talented people. Who, who could probably achieve a lot more if they had that growth mindset and that winning mindset. And that's yeah. probably the thing that lets a lot of people down from reaching their full potential. Yeah, spot on. And, and I think that that's the biggest uh, travesty that I see when I see a player or a person blocking their own development because they think they have to be perfect. And they don't have that growth mindset. What can I learn from that? How could I be better? Oh, yeah, that, yeah, I'll be better next time. Yeah. And the winning mindset kicks in. No, no, I'm going to kick its ass next time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mate, something, uh, I'll let you go. I just, something, something I've noticed and from doing my highlights reels and 
coaching a bit this year is that a lot of people are very impatient for the next step and yeah. rather than rather than going, you know, like I was talking to Mike Alatoa yesterday, Crusaders prop, and, and his view on his career was where can I go to make the most of my potential and that then the rewards will come from that rather than chasing the opportunity straight away. I, I, I don't know what you think, but I think that that's something that a lot of younger players don't have at the moment. No, you're spot on. And I, and I also look at you can't train your way to greatness in rugby, I don't believe. I think you've got you play your way to greatness. You've got to be playing the game. You've got to be playing consistently and have those failures and learn from those failures, and, but enjoy failing knowing that you're going to get better. And you're spot on what you're saying is more often than not, players are looking for the next step. So when they fail, they go, gee, I'm not closer to the next step rather than, no, I want to be in the best learning environment and program that I can be in and just continue to develop and the spoils of that will come when they come. Let's finish on that, mate. Thank you very much for your time. Um, I hope you enjoy the bye weekend, long weekend, and um, I'm sure I'll see you next week. Hi, mate. Remember, we're at that inner sanctum next this time. Oh, no, not this time, next week. Next Friday. I'll, yeah. um, when's a good time? Can I give you a call maybe Tuesday to yeah. talk about that? Yep, most definitely. Um, I'm looking forward to that. I'd, picking those guys' brains will be, be fun, I reckon. Yep, there's some good, good, um, IP in that room. Is there? Are there any tickets available? I think there might be some very limited tickets available. Yeah. Okay. I'll I'll put. Is it open to anyone, or is it sort of a specific? I think it's open to anyone. Yeah. Okay. No worries. I'll put it out there. Um, no wait, thank you. Have a good no, weekend. Thanks, thanks, Chubby. You have a great weekend, mate. All right, I'll talk to you later. Bye bye. All right, guys. That's today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I just have a little favour to ask everyone. Uh, if you enjoyed today's or any of the podcast, please make sure you subscribe on whatever platform you prefer to listen to. Follow us on Instagram at Wandering Bear Sports or on Facebook at Wandering Bear Sports. All that stuff makes it an absolute difference um, to what we're trying to do. Um, so for anyone that doesn't know, I've jumped into this full-time now. So this is my full-time job. So all those little things make such a big difference to us reaching a lot of people. Um, we've started to already. We just hit 15,000 downloads, which is pretty good considering that the social media profile is probably not really there yet. Um, so if you could do that for me, that would mean a lot. If you want to support us, please buy some caffeine gum. Uh, we actually own that company and that stuff makes a huge, huge impact on our lives and it means we can put out more and better content for you guys. So thank you very much for all the support so far. We're going to keep doing it and whatever you're doing this week, I wish you all the best at whatever it is and uh, go hard and we'll see you again next week. Cheers. Dunk.